On this exciting episode of StarPod Trek, we consider the Star Trek contents of Starlog Magazine in issues 75 and 76 from 1983. Burt Bruce enlightens us on the connections between Twilight Zone the movie and Star Trek. Nicholas Meyer gives us more insight into the Wrath of Khan, plus the Wrath of Khan toys. And more on this episode of... Star Trek. Greetings and felicitations. Hip hip hurrah, tally ho. Hey baby doll. Hey Puddin. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. We grew up in the 70s and 80s and watched Star Trek reruns when it was on syndication. On each episode of our show, we consider the contents in two issues of Starlog magazine and discuss what it was like to be a Trekkie years ago. But we leave the non-Trek-related content to our other podcast, Starpod Log. Feel free to follow along with your personal copy of Starlog magazine. If you would like to comment on the subject or give us feedback... Please send an audio file to us at starpodlog at gmail.com. Who knows, we might include your comments on a future episode. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your podcast app and look for us on YouTube for bonus content and media reviews. Feel free to join our Facebook group, too. Starlog Magazine, issue number 75. Cover date, October. 1983. Communications. Letters to Starlog Magazine. Shatner's Star. From Dana DiCarlo in Portchester, New York. I've just finished reading William Shatner, Shitsoid Superstar in Starlog number 72 from my airplane seat. It is one of Bill's best interviews with much credit to Ed Naha. I've just come from Hollywood to see Bill receive his star on the Hollywood Boulevard Walk of Fame, which almost seems coincidental and deserving from reading the article. I'm proud to be part of Bill's Legion and Fellowship member. Bravo to both men. And we would see that this would become a long-standing tradition on the Hollywood Walk of Fame to get the stars of the original series each individually get a star on this walk. And this happened to Bill Shatner in 1983. Yeah, that was pretty exciting. It would have been neat to be there. Log entries. Latest news in the worlds of science fiction and fact. Video log. Joining Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan in the highly successful $39.95 discount price arena is Star Trek The Motion Picture in its special longer version of 144 minutes. This much sought-after and controversial edition is available on VHS Stereo and regular Beta 2 from Paramount. And two Star Trek TV episodes, Balance of Terror and Mirror Mirror, RCA $19.98. Were you excited when the motion picture was released on VHS and it had additional footage? Yeah, I thought that would have been neat to see it. I didn't have, you know, like a VCR back then. But, it was one of those yeah. things. I remember going to a rental store. People could rent TVs, and and they had repairs as well. That's when my grandfather and I would get tubes for the television. 
And just seeing that saying, wow, there's an even longer edition of the motion picture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it, it already felt like it was too long. But but I mean, but you want to see those extra was, scenes. That's exactly yeah. what it was. I was like, wow, this is so amazing. Maybe this movie will be better or make more sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> Toward the Unknown Regions. In June 13th, 1983, the spacecraft Pioneer 10 being approximately 2.8 billion miles from the sun, crossed beyond the orbits of all the known planets to become the first man-made object to leave our solar system. This was such an achievement because Pioneer 10 was launched in 1972. See, so you figure it, it started its first trip to Jupiter. It had a crossing of the asteroid belt. During the time it was discovered that Jupiter is a liquid planet, and I had the first close-up photographs of Jupiter. Pioneer 10 was dreamed up even as far back as World War II. Absolutely. It's, it's amazing to think that that far back, man was considering going far beyond the, the universe that, that we knew that, that we could see. Beyond the moon, beyond Mars. Pretty impressive. So it took roughly 10 years to go and leave our solar system. Yeah, it took a long time. But it, it's still amazing that it happened at all. William Rotzler re releases three books. It's interesting that even in 1983, there was still Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan merchandising being released. Three books that were designed for kids. Short stories, biographies, and distress call. I love the fact that when I went to book fairs, like Scholastic Book Fairs, things like that, you had the option of finding Star Trek things. But I never had these books as a kid. It's only when I got older that I was able to retroactively find them. I know this is shocking, but Star Trek things <laughs> always had distribution problems. So we do have a copy of Star Trek II Biographies, and it's got interviews with the stars of the movie, Chekhov, Kirk, McCoy, Scotty, Spock, Sulu, and Ahura. And so it's, I mean, it's interesting because it's a write-up talking, it's talking to them, but it is, it's actually the characters. It's like they interviewed the characters for this book. Yeah, it's not the biographies of the actors, but it's trying to get to know who Ahura was, who Sulu was. Yeah, definitely an interesting read. I mean, like, like for someone like Chekhov, I mean, like, how did he get to be a first officer? We didn't get enough information on anyone besides the big three at this point. Definitely worthwhile to have in the Trek collection. How about Distress Call? So this is a plot your own adventure. Which were super popular back then. I never had any, but you had some. I right? did. I remember the first one I ever got was called Deadwood City. It was a western one. And after I read that... I couldn't get enough of them. So it does pl take place um, in the movie era. It's got Admiral James T. Kirk. So I'll read the back cover. The USS Enterprise has just received a frantic call for help from the vicinity of the unknown planet of Varda Three. An archaeological team from Luna University has disappeared without a trace. Lost? Trapped? Hurt? Their fading call offers no clues. Join Admiral Kirk and Mr. Spock, along with other characters, on a fantastic mission to an alien planet. Plot your own journey through eerie passages. So that's pretty neat, yeah. I mean, it, you know, like a role-playing game, but they had to make them like books. And the third one that was released 
was called Star Trek II Short Stories, which essentially was literally what it says, a variety of short stories that kids could read. So, so like reading a novel, but it was a collection of short stories. And, and yeah, I never saw any of these in stores back then. The great bird of the galaxy, Gene Roddenberry, once said, What I will take credit for is I surrounded myself with very bright people who came up with all these wonderful things, and then you can appear very smart. Starpod Trek. Celebrating Gene Roddenberry's vision of the future. Hey, greetings and welcome. This is Burt Bruce, Starlog. Issue number 75, the article entitled John Lithgow, booked on a nightmare passage into the Twilight Zone by David McDonald. We're going to deal with Twilight Zone movie came out in 1983, 40-some years ago now. This is the October issue of uh, Starlog. October 1983, I would have been just turning 21 so here we are 40 years later and now i'm 61 and we're still dealing with the twilight zone movie you'll notice there was never a twilight zone movie sequel i'm gonna tell you why john landis great director and i admire him greatly uh at that time i think he was uh at the height of his power but uh during his uh, filming of his uh, segment concerning a bigot uh played by vic morrow who you'd know from the TV series Combat, if you're of a certain age. Anyway, Vic Morrow was tragically killed, along with two children, by the helicopter blades of a helicopter that malfunctioned. And uh, during that time, especially on a program called Entertainment Tonight, they just, it was 24-7 coverage of those uh, little children who died on a movie set, and it was tragic and it was needless. And I think it really hurt Landis' career afterwards because... Before that, he'd come from American Werewolf in London. He did the Blues Brothers movie. He did so many good works. And he really, he kind of recovered afterwards. He did Coming to America with Eddie Murphy. But his career could have been so much more had he not. uh, The helicopter didn't have to be over Vic Morrow's head. They could have filmed the shot in a totally different way and uh, would have saved the lives of those three people. But anyway, that happened. And so it was kind of... uh, a curse on the Twilight Zone movie after that fact. Although it's a good movie, two of the four segments are just, as far as I'm concerned, perfect. Spielberg's Kick the Can is a little less than, and uh, the two best ones, of course, are The Kid Who Wishes, Yeah, Out in the Cornfield, originally played by Billy Moomy, and then, of course, Nightmare at, uh, what is it, 30,000 feet, I guess. Anyway, that was originally played, yeah, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, let me be correct. Um, The original was directed by Richard Donner, who, of course, directed Superman and Superman 2. And it was broadcast in 1963, starred William Shatner, as you know, Captain Kirk. Now, how does this tie in to Star Trek? Well, Shatner, of course, played the original uh, passenger who saw the gremlin on the wing of the plane. He was a... uh, He had just been released from a mental uh, hospital, or as I like to call him, a nervous hospital. John Lithgow, the turn on it is that he's a brilliant uh, uh, PhD uh, literate scientist, and he's still afraid of flying. And And the episode's very good. Even though I'm not a Lithgow fan, he does an effective job portraying fear on film. He did a good job. And, of course, the director of the... uh, movie version is George Miller, who you know as the director of Mad Max and uh, the original uh, 
Mad Max as well as The Road Warrior and Thunderdome. I think he did all three movies. I'm almost positive of that. Anyway, back to Star Trek and Shatner. Lithgow has never played on Star Trek. As to my knowledge, he's never played a part in any Star Trek, but he did play on national public radio. He played Yoda. So he's got a Star Wars entanglement, but he's not done Star Trek as of today. But he and Shatner have worked together. If you know the little uh, sitcom, which again, I'm not a big fan of, Third Rock from the Sun, Shatner played Great Big Head. Is there more a more well-cast person than to play Great Big Head? Anyway, they worked together and they slyly referenced Nightmare at 20,000 feet about a plane flight that the, nearly killed him. Anyway, uh, Lithgow goes on to talk about his career in doing a lot of work for Brian De Palma as a villain. And then he played the transsexual football player Roberta Muldoon in The World According to Garp. A lot of people love that movie. A lot of people are big World of According to Garp fans. I'm not one of them. <laughs> Didn't care for it. Thought it was a lot of... I, I had read the book and it was... Eh, it was okay. You know, what are you going to do, right? But I didn't feel the film uh, lived up to the hype. Robin Williams is hit or miss as far as I'm concerned. He can be... Sometimes he can take a role and just run with it and do a great job. And other times, eh, he's not so good. Witness uh, the Bicentennial Man. Go look that one up. Get back to me. Anyway, back to Lithgow. He uh, did a range of different films, of course, and in this, you know, this is probably the best of the uh, Twilight Zone uh, vignettes, the little kid in, uh, and the lady whose name escapes me in the uh, Billy Moomy episode where they, uh, the kid's got ma magical powers, and it's got also Kevin McCarthy from The Body Snatchers playing the uncle. I thought that was a pretty effective one. The other two, Scatman Crothers and Kick the Can, yeah, it was okay. Spielberg uh, can be... Uh, a little too whimsical for my taste, and it wasn't the best of the four episodes. And the other one is, of course, the John Landis-directed Vic Morrow uh, episode where he plays a bigot, and uh, they put him in a series of different uh, uh, scenarios, like he's in the uh, he's in a train car going to the gas ovens in uh, Germany during World War II. It's just not that good. Landau, Landis, I should say, John Landis can be so much better. And that episode of the of the four is probably the weakest of the four. It just doesn't it doesn't cohese. There's no cohesion. That's my favorite word, cohesion. And and Landis is one of my favorite directors, even in spite of the horrible accident that took Morrow's life. Vic Morrow was a very good actor. I always liked him. His daughter, of course, is Jennifer Jason Lee, and I think that affected her life afterwards as well. She was never quite the same. But uh, anyway, The Twilight Zone, good movie, but you'll probably never, see, at least in my lifetime, I don't think they'll ever do a sequel because Spielberg kind of felt it was a cursed film. It's so back to Lithgow for a moment. He talks about uh, he's got some kids and uh, the thing that they're most excited about, his little son was excited that uh, he played uh, Yoda in the National Public Radio adaptation of The Empire Strikes Back. And uh, his kid was pretty excited about that. He didn't know what Frank Oz thought of his performance, but he knew that he felt like he was uh, trying to recreate the role from Oz and felt that Oz was on his shoulder looking over him. Then, this is really pertinent to today. This whole article um, kind of concludes with, 
1983, and and it's never been re-shown. I've never got gotten even to see. I've never seen it. ABC TV did a TV, television movie called The Day After, and it was depicting the realistic aftermath of a nuclear war. Again, here's your other Star Trek uh, connection. Nicholas Meyer, who directed and, of course, helped write Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, directed this large ensemble cast, which also included Jason Robards and B.B. Besh, who played uh, Shatner's love interest, Dr. Carol Marcus, and Jill Beth Williams of Poltergeist fame. And so Lithgow says, I don't know if Ian, his son, will be watching the day after. I don't think so. I don't really want him to see it. The actor also has a one-year-old daughter, Phoebe, with his wife, a UCLA press professor, and she was pregnant at the time, so I take it. He's got at least three kids. In the day after, he plays a young physics professor at the University of Kansas, one of the few people who knows what actions to take when nuclear war breaks out. It was a small part. Every part in it is small because it's a huge cast of characters. It's strange. I only did three days on that film, but the subject matter burns you out for weeks. My God, it was incredibly depressing to be a human being playing walking ash. Do I die in the film? Well, we all do. Nicholas Meyer showed me, John Lithgow, a reel of it while we were shooting, and I was very distressed by it. I'm not sure how it will play when broadcast on television. The whole reason for filming the day after was to create a very realistic impression of what that day will be like. This is a strong possibility we all face. Not science fiction, but fact. Here's this very ordinary small town with these very ordinary people doing ordinary things, and then something disastrous happens to the world, to them, and to their lives, and it's the end. And even though the show hadn't even premiered on television yet, in this issue, 75 of Starlog, there's a whole cluster of letters about this show, the, the TV uh, movie, The Day After. And it's not even aired yet. It's crazy. They didn't even air it, and people had a strong reaction. At that time, I worked a lot, and I was a DJ during the evenings. I never got a chance to see the film, and never have. I don't know. Uh, I don't know that I'd want to see it today because we're now with current events like they are in Israel and uh, China and uh, Russia, Ukraine. Things are uh, very tense. And here's my final Star Trek analogy: the only thing I can do is hope for the uh, Roddenberry uh, optimism. In other words, he. Uh, he did predict World War III and the eugenics wars and things of that nature on the television show, but he said we recover from it. So even in the worst of times, we hope that mankind can uh, rally together and uh, from chaos we uh, emerge uh, victorious. I know that kind of sounds uh, a little overly uh, saccharine. I don't mean it to, but we can only hope for the best in the future. However, those are a few Star Trek-related uh, Ways we can tie John Lithgow into the Star Trek universe that he he took over a role that was originally created by William Shatner, also known as Captain Kirk. He worked with Nicholas Meyer, who was uh, the big hero of Star Trek II. So I think I did a good job. I did uh, I did my due diligence and was able to tie this into Star Trek in a few different ways. So uh, thank you. Again, I am not a John Lithgow fan. Doesn't mean you shouldn't be. He's Got nothing to be ashamed of. I just feel he's an overactor. In other words, he will overly try to uh, put across uh, big ideas. But it comes from the theater. He's theater trained. So, I mean, you know, it's in his blood that he would come in and make big uh, 
I'll put it this way. You never forget his performances. When he does his performance, he is definitely a presence. Do I buy him as a football player? I do not. He won his first Tony as a rugby player. I look at him as a big lump of a guy. I don't see him being, he doesn't strike me as athletic. So a good actor, yes, athletic. Maybe he is. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe he had a career in uh, football, but uh, he certainly doesn't uh, mention it in uh, the article. talk about some of the events that we attended this past month. First and foremost, Star-Based Indy. Yeah, another great con that we go to every year. So we did a panel at this one, uh, the 50th anniversary of the animated series, and we got to be on the main stage this time. It was a lot of fun. It's the only convention in the world that the main stage is a, a bridge, a Starship bridge. It's awesome. Command chair, lighted panels, uh, they're not just lighted, they're actually moving panels. Full video screen. I can't say it enough how much we love Starbase Indy. It feels like going back in time to what creation conventions used to be decades ago. And this time, locals from Nashville went with us, members of the USS Athena, our friends Phil and Joseph, and we got to meet other fans from around the United States, which was especially exciting because they have the Starfleet Command annual meeting there. Yeah, the Starfleet Command uh, annual meeting and award ceremony, and that's always great to go to, and they actually had that one in the main room this time. And another member of the Athena, Lisa, was also there, uh, not from Nashville, but she got to come, so it was great to meet her. I don't mean to brag, but USS Athena swept the award ceremony. Yeah, we got a lot this time, and... and you know, I like to say our our hard work is, has paid off because we did we did do a lot of work with our with our ship this year. Well, we organize and attend so many conventions and so many events and charities, and the best thing about being part of Starfleet Command is the fact that all of our ship members are our friends. We love hanging out and doing things socially. That's one of the biggest benefits of of being part of Starfleet Command. Yeah, we love to have these in person meetups with all our friends so it's a lot of fun and so we've got um so we won the award for ship of the year and we also got flagship of the year for next year back-to-back awards there yes and um i got officer of the year and you got junior officer of the year i love the fact that you're officer of the year (laughs) (laughs) this convention is so unique the klingon room party always impressive members of cag put that together yeah they have a big setup there with the chair, the batleths, the whole scene, and, and um, and of course the Klingons also had their own uh, fan table, the CAG table, and we had our table there for Starpod Trek. Seeing Doctor Noor again. Doctor Noor, Doctor Muhammad Noor from um from the Paramount Plus shows. He's he's a great fan and a great guy, and we loved his panels and talking to him. Doctor Rathjen, amazing, someone who's involved in NASA, being a guest and giving us an update on the state of spaceflight. So unique, the way the, these panels in this convention presents real-world science and the cross-section with Trek. And we saw Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. He's always a, a blast to be around. Yeah, he's a fun guy, and he, he um, spent a lot of time talking to us. I mean, he's just he's just so full of knowledge and stories. Highly recommend our listeners check him out, Portal 47. He is content every Tuesday that he presents live. And and Bonnie Gordon, 
the voice of the proto star from Star Trek Prodigy. And she's really nice, too. She spoke to us, too. She's a, a great lady and loves this convention. And we were part of the uh, the Celebrity Mixer this time. They, they used to do Dinner with the Stars at Starbase Indy, and now they've changed it to a mixer where they serve um, appetizers, and you still get to meet all the all the guests that are there. I love it. It, it was fun. It really was. Moxie and Magnus, our friend from for many years at DragonCon, she's the MC of the show. If you haven't gotten your tickets at next year's Starbase Indie, listeners, what are you waiting for? And our local Star Trek club here in Middle Tennessee, the USS Athena, had its annual Christmas party, this time with a twist. Normally we go out to dinner, but... One of our members has an epic Star Trek collection, and he wanted to share it with everyone else. So we had the party at his house. Yeah, one of our officers, Phil, had a, a had the Star Trek party at his home, and oh, it was so great. We he's got this Christmas tree with all of the Hallmark Star Trek ornaments. I mean, he said he had most of them, like ninety percent, and it was so cool. He's been collecting them since the nineties. And to have them all lit up, and some of them talk and. When you see yeah, them all, all together, I've never yeah. seen them all together before. I've never seen any. I've seen loose before. I've seen a couple hanging on the tree, but have one entire tree just filled with them. Wow. Yeah, it was amazing looking at the tree and and listening to all the sounds and like the music and all the um, the sound effects they put from the show. Oh yeah, that was great. And and he has a great collection. He had a room full of um, all the Star Trek merchandise. Pictures, books, autographs, and all that, a bunch of stuff he's collected over the years. Yeah, the best part was just being with Star Trek fans and having a meal together. And talking Star Trek with everyone. So we appreciate all the Athena members that came. I mean, I think we have such a great group of people. We're, um, we're always happy to see all of them. They're great friends and friendly people. And, and we're glad that they love coming to these events. And we couldn't have made Ship of the Year without them. We we also gave out Christmas presents and awards to all the members. We gave them a copy of our um, Ship of the Year certificates, which I think they all appreciated. I'm William Shatner with a reminder. Never flirt with fire with your Christmas tree. Be sure cords aren't frayed, wiring is approved, lights don't overload circuits. Always keep a live tree and plenty of water, no candles nearby to turn a tree into a torch. Have the safety smarts for Happy Holidays. Viewmaster Spaceman Theater with a projector, viewer, and ten reels in toy and photo departments. so challenging you need this combat control panel to play it take command of the starship enterprise as you battle your way through unknown sectors blast klingons raise your shields watch for space mines is this the most challenging game in the galaxy it's inhuman star trek from sega Starlog Magazine, issue number 76, cover date, November 1983. 
Log Entries, latest news in the worlds of science fiction and fact. Leonard Nimoy beams down to Space Trek 2. I really wanted to get out and find out what these people are thinking, Leonard Nimoy said, referring to fans attending Space Trek 2, a late June Star Trek convention in St. Louis, Missouri. What I found out is they're thinking about the next picture. The 1600 assembled fans were keenly interested in Star Trek 3, which began filming a few weeks later under Nimoy's direction. Following a talk detailing the history of his involvement with the phenomenon and the death of Spock, Nimoy was besieged with questions about the upcoming film. He was really playful with this audience. It's actually a breakdown of some of his commentary from the stage, and he was going back and forth with fans, but he still would not give up many details. Which is fantastic. I don't like spoilers. I think one of the best things of the era before the internet is that you can actually enjoy a movie without worrying about seeing it the absolute day it came out for fear of having spoilers. Because spoilers are destroying so many movies now and TV shows. The way people know too much about a movie before it comes out, and, and they already start complaining about it before and it comes it, out. Yeah, that drives me crazy. Uh, he makes it very clear. He goes on to say, wait till you see the scene where he's no, 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 <laughs> like he's teasing the audience. But he did say, he said, did you see Spock die? Were you crying? If he wasn't dead, then why were you crying? Because people were asking him, how could how could he return if he died? And then someone in the audience yelled out, nobody dies in science fiction. And he countered with, who said that? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, people died on the original series and came back, like like Scotty. He said he's really excited about this picture. We've got a wonderful adventure and a wonderful story about our family, about friendship, and some very good science fiction elements. There will be some wonderful surprises for you. I'm convinced that you will like it. He continues by saying, I can tell you for sure that all the original Star Trek family is back. Mark Leonard is back as Spock's father. Merritt Buttrick is back. At the moment, that's all I can say. I will tell you in all sincerity that I really think all of you will be very excited about what you discover in this next story. So take my word and look forward to Star Trek Three. Well, that's pretty good. I, I mean, yeah, I was I was interested in it. You know, the thing is, I was disappointed that Kirstie Alley wasn't coming back. But aside from that, I mean, yeah, I was excited to see it and and. And I always wondered, like, is Spock coming back? And I know when Leonard Nimoy was doing, you know, that show Lights, Camera, Action that we've talked about. Yes. He, he mentioned on there, like he, he said, well, fans want to know if Spock is coming back in Star Trek Three, And he goes, I can assure you that Spock's presence will be felt throughout the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Star Trek explores comic territories. Just as the crew of the USS Enterprise lives on through the silver screen, the Star Trek comic won't stay dead either. In no in November, DC Comics becomes the third American comics publisher to helm the four-color adventures of James T. Kirk and company. So yes, the first company to produce Star Trek comics was Gold Key, the second was Marvel, and now DC. And I will have to say, DC was my favorite company, even up to this day, of what they did with Star Trek comics. Yeah, their their stories were better. It's like they understood it better. DC premieres 
this as a 75-cent monthly title with a story written by Mike W. Barr and illustrated by Tom Sutton. This new mission follows immediately after the incidents depicted in Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan and will continue into its segues in adaptation of Star Trek III sometime in 1984. Editor Marv Wolfman says, I saw a preview of The Wrath of Khan about a month before the movie opened and went into D.C. President Jeanette Khan's office the next day and said, We must do this. This is a hot movie. I kept touting it, and Jeanette, fortunately, is a Star Trek fan. Generally, the company has always had a down attitude toward buying licenses, but based on what I had said about Star Trek II, they took a look. VP Operations' Paul Levitz investigated buying the license, and a deal was completed in late 1982. Now, here's what's unique about this series that was different than the Marvel series. The deal, Wolfman explains, allows DC to use anyone from the original TV series and both features. This offers an important creative difference. Neither Gold Key in the 70s nor Marvel from 79 to 81 were allowed such contractual freedom. Another reason why Wolfman feels the DC attempt will succeed is that everyone tried to mimic the television show completely. Everyone went for a four-act play with heavy plotting, ignoring the fact that this was a comic book. Whereas this series, Bun DC, they realized that the format for comics is different than, than television. And so they're adapting the characters and the pace of storing for this medium. Yeah, um, well, it's strange that the others didn't know that, since this is... You know, this is how you do a comic. I mean, yeah, they should know, like, to do a comic series like a comic series. Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Knucklehead. With me on the bridge this evening is my first mate, Lou Melagrana. Hi, I'm Lou Melagrana. I'd like to welcome you aboard to our Facebook group, Migo Like. I'm also known as the chief engineer, Biscotti. Hey, I can't get the damn people up in the tube, but I'm pressing the button and making a microwave of popcorn. And now down to you, Max Overnighter. I'm Max Overnighter, contributor on Migo Like Facebook group. My favorite Star Trek character is Chewbacca. No, wait, it's that black and white littler guy. Hey, why am I the only one in a red shirt? I'm Rich Hurley, also known as Dr. Durant, and I'm not a doctor. I'm just a YouTuber that shows old comic books and toys on YouTube. No, I can vouch for that, you bubble-headed booby. Check out Dr. Durant on YouTube. Now let's talk about some of the toys that were released in conjunction with Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. you got to figure by 1983, we were watching The Wrath of Khan on cable at this time on a regular basis. Constantly it was on. I remember watching Wrath of Khan all the time. Yeah, it was, you know, all, all the showings that it was on and I would watch it every time it came on. So the toys had to be in high production at that time. Wait a no, second. I thought they weren't. There were, no, <laughs> there were no toys. Isn't that the craziest thing? It was a runaway hit. The motion picture had toys. The motion picture had comics. The motion picture had everything. Yet, for the Wrath of Khan, virtually nothing. Isn't that wild to think that? It is. Even though we, we know the reason. I mean, because the motion picture wasn't as big a hit. And so they just didn't want to, they didn't want to spend the money on the merchandising. They didn't know it would be a hit. That's the thing. You have to, you have to have all the toys in line to come out with the movie. And they didn't want to do that because they didn't know the movie would be a hit. There were a couple items though that are worth mentioning. First and foremost, Rathacon Viewmaster reels. You got to figure Viewmaster was 
a staple, a childhood staple for decades at this point. And the Wrath of Khan is the hardest one to find for Star Trek collectors. We know they had the animated series Viewmasters, the original series Viewmasters, motion picture, but the Wrath of Khan, a little bit more difficult. They did not make it at the high volume that others made. So there was some aspects of toys for the Wrath of Khan. There were also trading cards. I didn't see the cards back then. They weren't really wide distribution. There were two sets of cards produced for Wrath of Khan, and the first set was five by sevens, um, looking like postcards. Yeah, they were ginormous. And I'm in the same boat. I never saw these growing up. And I was an avid trading card collector. And you would have gotten these big ones? Of course. If I saw anything Star Trek, I would have gotten them. By this time, I mean, you were collecting Return of the Jedi cards. Yeah, I was. Right? Yeah. I mean, anything sci-fi, fantasy, TV shows, Incredible Hulk, Moonraker. I mean, anything my brother and I saw, we would go to Wawa or Cumberland Farms. Anytime my father had to get gas or something, pick up a pack of cigarettes, we'd go and get some trading cards. Because that was just a common thing on a counter of convenience stores. I never saw these before. And they used great pictures for these, too. They had the close-up pictures of the actors. Yeah, it's in our collection now as an adult. You're flipping through the pages. One thing I did notice is that there's no logos on the cards. It's literally just a white border and a picture. To make it look like um, like it's your family photos or something. (laughs) I never thought about (laughs) it like that. And even the packages for these large trading cards were strange. Yeah, so the package was like, it was only three colors, and it was kind of like, like, like a, it kind of looked like the negative for the picture. Yeah, so it's a black background with red and yellow print, and it was plastic instead of wax. Very curious. But it was something different, so it was unique. I mean, it was, I guess that was a good selling point because it looked different. And there were four variations. One had Kirk, and one had Spock, and then there was Khan, and then there was the Enterprise. And it says, two giant photo cards from Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Oh, so in each pack they only had two. And I think that would be a hard selling point, because most kids want more than just two. Yeah, and the kids had to get their parents to buy them several packs. (laughs) This was produced by FTC. And then overseas, there was another set of Wrath of Khan trading cards. So overseas, it was it was from Monty Gunset, and so they made the regular size cards, and they made them like like you know instead of in the U.S. where they were extra large, these were extra small. They had the um, yeah, they were unstandard size. Yeah, which is really strange. They're like mini cards. But these actually had the logo. It said Star Trek. It doesn't say Star Trek: The Wrath of Khan. But they, but it has a frame that that's unusual that I wouldn't, I wouldn't think that frame is indicative of of the movie. It's a pink, black, and yellow frame. Like, why exactly? What a weird color combination for Star Trek. Well, they use good pictures, but some of these, you know, like some of these look like it, it's a picture that would have been better on the on the larger uh, format. They use some some of these pictures are pretty full, and it's like, well, they made the cards too small to see it. But some of the pictures are good if it's just a single person. Blank backs, and to me, that's frustrating because I used to love reading the facts on the back of trading cards. Yeah, that's such a waste having the plain backs. They could have put something on them. Yeah, I'm just looking at these. I think they're all—they're really too small, though. I mean, like for picture collectors, you want to be able to see more details. And the package was different. It so it looks like it's um, a picture from a comic book, really, the art. But it has Kirk, Spock, and Savick. Which I'm glad. 
because Savic they were trying to build up as a future character. Yeah, she would have been great. Yeah, I mean, Kirstie Alley as Savic, if they had continued that, I think it would have been great. But she, of course, you know, had other things to do. But even so, the package doesn't say Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. It just says Star Trek. But all the pictures are Wrath of Khan. And we're going to see that as a theme going forward with a lot of Wrath of Khan era items that were for sale. Such as, such as the Atari game. So we know there was an arcade game that came out in 1982 for 1983. There was a video game, a transfer of the arcade game for a variety of home systems. Star Trek, the strategic operations simulator was ported by Sega. Now these were non-vector versions, so it visually looked different than the arcade game. But they made them for the Atari 2600, the Atari 5200, the ColecoVision, the Apple II, Atari 8-bit computers, Commodore 64, TI-99-4A, and the VIC-20. I love the cover art of this these boxes. So for I'm holding one of the cartridge boxes in my hand, and so it had it had the Klingons on it, the ridged Klingons, and and it's got the Enterprise. It looks like. It looks like they're firing on the Enterprise on their view screen. Which I think is unique that they're the presentation of this is from the Klingon's point of view attacking the Enterprise. So the connection with the Wrath of Khan was supposed to be that this is like the Kobayashi Maru simulator. Yeah, it would have to be because there's nothing <laughs> else from the movie with Klingons. Exactly. Which, again, another missed opportunity to have something directly related to Wrath of Khan. But they knew that everyone knew who Klingons were. Klingons were already a popular character. Let's go with Klingons instead of something that potentially, because it takes years to develop these things, to potentially have something that that could be a flop that nobody knows who Khan is or what could they do with a Reliant versus Enterprise. If the movie was a flop, they didn't want the video game to be a flop. So this is the direction that they took. I say a very loose connection to Wrath of Khan. Well, yeah, it's still interesting that they're using the Klingons with ridges because they they had only made one appearance in Star Trek at the time. Isn't that crazy to think that? But and even the, then, in, in a short scene. Short scene, you know. but it was beloved by fans at that point. They still made action figures. They still made comic books. The King, Klingons going forward were known with the ridges. Yeah, definitely going forward. So you had this one... I definitely had this for Atari, and then we got a ColecoVision, and the ColecoVision was amazing. So so the game for this was fighting the Klingons? Mm-hmm. There were some Corgi miniature starships of the Enterprise, as well as a Klingon ship. Again, <laughs> people knew what the Klingon ship was, so they made miniatures of those. And speaking of miniatures... This is the year that the Fossa role-playing game came out, which we'll discuss later on. <sighs> Amazing that they made miniatures of Savik, Khan, and a variety of other Star Trek characters. So we could say that, no, there weren't any action figures produced during the original era of Wrath of Khan, but we did have metal miniatures. So they were little metal pieces, and they were unpainted. So they had um, Warkim and Khan... Scotty, well, they had, so they had all the main characters. So these little tiny miniatures, and they had, they were on a platform. And the packaging actually said Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. 
I remember seeing these at a gaming store at the Milford Mall. I never had them, though. So they had a Spock and a Con. Oh, so, and you can buy the set. And, again, I think it was a missed opportunity that they only sold these in hobby stores, not in toy stores or department stores. But they did have them at Walden Books. But going forward into the modern era, modern toy producers realized what a miss it was not to make Wrath of Khan memorabilia. So you see different companies like Playmates in the 90s made Wrath of Khan action figures. Current Mego made Wrath of Khan dolls. Yeah, those dolls were fantastic. They you could um you could pose them. They they had the the movable arms and everything. And they had Spock with the with the gloves, the radiation gloves where you could put them on or take them off. Yes, the mo- the modern recreations of the Playmates included those gloves, which I thought was an excellent attention to detail. I mean, if these things came out in the 80s, I would have been all over it. Yeah, me too. But also we have to remember, Rathacon Photo Novel came out. That was going to be the last of the Phono do- novels. That was yeah, the- see, I couldn't find that either. I wanted that. Horrible yeah. distribution. <laughs> what do we always say? Star Trek never was good at even distribution amongst all outlets. As adult collectors, yes, we have it, but it's going to be the last of the photo novels. Because now VCRs were going to be a common thing. People didn't need photo novels anymore. And reflecting on the merchandising of Wrath of Khan, it's unfortunate, but there just wasn't enough to satisfy the passion that Star Trek fans had in 1982 and 1983. And they didn't have have a deal with um, fast food or a cereal. Like, like the motion video. picture did. Yeah. Yeah, they yeah. screwed. I mean, they just figure it all. Oh, what's the point? Oh, what the. <laughs> they give up so easily. I'm Nair of the Star Pod Trek podcast, and we are welcoming to the stage Nicholas Meyer. Uh, I particularly love the scores to Time After Time and The Wrath of Khan. And uh, I was wondering how you came to choose those particular composers, because, of course, both scores absolutely enhance everything you see on screen, as any good score should. So how did you come to choosing them? Well, um, I come from a family of musicians. My mother was a concert pianist. My grandfather was in the Boston Symphony in the first violin section. My dad was an excellent uh, amateur pianist, but he could sight-read any. So I grew up with it. My sister teaches the violin in Beverly Hills, and, and I used to be a sort of parlor pianist. But my, my knowledge of music and also of film music is fairly encyclopedic. Uh, I'm not talking about rock and roll, and, but even musicals, jazz, classical, baroque, uh, romance. I, I was once thinking of uh, um, titling an oral biography of mine, Everything I know, I learned from the back of record jackets because I used to like take the thing home and sure. read all that. Um, so I had like forty albums of Miklos Rojas uh, on record. I had Ben Hur, King of Kings, El Cid, Asphalt, Jungle, Spellbound, uh, Naked City, Brute Force. Um, I had a lot, and I thought that. Those of you who know Time After Time know it's about a Victorian guy who comes into the future. And I thought, well, if there's any rock and roll, that's a sound effect. That's, that's another sci-fi something. But the point of view is the point of view of a Victorian guy. And somebody who could write music that was 
not only symphonic under the circumstances, but also had a gift for fantasy. This was also the guy who wrote The Thief of Baghdad. Mm -hmm. And I said, it's got to be him. <laughs> Warner Brothers hated this idea. Wow. They wanted Bill Conti. Um, but I, long story, but I, I, I got him. And when I went to meet him, um, I brought all 40 albums to be <laughs> autographed. <laughs> I understand. So, um, and the one, I made very few, you know, aside from spotting where we wanted the music to go, the um, one thing I wanted was I wanted the Ripper's Watch to play a little tune. And the tune, I, I chose the tune. It's, it's um, a little song, an old French folk song, which is part of a song cycle called the Chanson d'Auvergne, which was arranged for uh, orchestra and soprano uh, by an early 20th century, late 19th century composer named Joseph Cameloup. And I picked this thing. And by the way, some of those songs are also in that Henry V movie used by William Walton, uh, um, both. So uh, I don't outgrow my influences, evidently. <laughs> So we had a music box made that played that little uh, tune. With time after, um, we talking about Star Trek? Was the other one Khan? Yeah, Khan. Um, well, I couldn't afford Jerry Goldsmith. Remember, the first one was forty-five million dollars. Ours was, I think, eleven two. And Jerry Goldsmith, I think, got something like three hundred and fifty thousand dollars to write a film score. We weren't quite in that league, so we started listening to cassettes of different uh, people doing stuff. And I heard some music by this guy, James Horner, and he sounded interesting to me. So I brought him into Meat, and uh, he and I both shared a certain deadpan humor. And I said, okay, it's going to be you. And this is what I want. Remember, this is a movie about the Navy. So I want WC, I want La Mer. I want the ocean. Just give me ocean and we'll be fine. Um, and that's what he did. And that's how I picked him. So, oh, yes. I have a question. There's something in Star Trek 2 that's always bothered me. Oh, God. <laughs> no, no, no. no. <laughs> no it's like when Khan has his people how come there's nobody else from the series that was with him? He had nothing but young people, all blonde. Surfer dudes. But his people were all black and dark and all that from the original series. Whose idea was that to not have bring anybody in? And why did they go with like the Aryan race kind of like? Because if they had kids, they would be 15. Some of them, they look 15, you know? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> when you came on to Wrath of Khan, you did mention that you wanted a more military feel, a more naval feel to it. What was the reaction of the cast and everyone else involved when you expressed that? Well, I didn't express it in so many words. I just redesigned the uniforms and, and did it. The cast was very professional. They were so used to different people coming on and directing different episodes. That, you know, they were sort of philosophical. We all know the best Star Trek 
movie is Galaxy Quest. <laughs> That's the one that really nailed it. Um, and it was brilliant because it, it, it delivered the very thing that it spoofed. That's... Yeah. You know, that's pretty amazing that it could do that. Um, Gene Roddenberry took exception to it because he didn't think that the Starfleet was a military organization. He, the most he would give it was the Coast Guard. And I said, fine, Coast Guard, but they're in boats. <laughs> um, and yes, that was... Um, the cast was just... They liked the script because everybody had something to do. They had a part to play. And that was what was important, uh, I think, to them as actors. Um, nobody was carrying the torch of Star Trek purity. There was, um, oh, I think I forgot what it was. Uh, I'm going to say so. If I remember it, I'll interrupt myself. <laughs> Yes. Whose idea was it to tie the Wrath of Khan into a, uh, a continuation yeah. of Space Seed? Harv Bennett. Harv Bennett had that idea because Harv Bennett watched all the episodes, which I did not. Um, but I, I do remember one thing that was, maybe it's funny. Um, we... Somebody leaked the idea that Spock was going to die in this movie. There's a lot of theories as to who that was. Um, but we would get letters from fans saying, you know, if Spock dies, you die. That kind of helpful. <laughs> and, uh, and I have said before, and I'll say now, the French filmmaker Robert Bresson said, my job is not to find out what the public want and give it to them. My job is to make the public want what I want. So I didn't really, I never really cared in the abstract what you guys think. Because if I had left it up to you, Spock wouldn't have died. It just, it has to, you can opt out. You cannot read the book. You cannot go to the movie. But... It's, it's not a democracy. It's, it's a dictatorship governed by consent of the governed. That's, you, can, you can make it into a flop. You can vote with your feet. But I can't... I would never tell you a joke that I didn't think was funny on the off chance that you might be amused. I have to like it. I make an assumption that if I like the story, other people are going to like it. And if I'm wrong, you know, I'll pay a price. <coughs> So we were sitting in a screening room looking at special effects test shots. It was like 8 o'clock in the morning. I'm nursing a cup of coffee, sitting behind Harv Bennett, and there's one of these, if Spock dies, you die, you know, note. And I had taken that simulator sequence from page 30 and moved it to the front of the movie because I thought, oh, that was a cool opening. But Spock wasn't in it. And I read this note, and I, and I was kind of talking to myself. And I said, yeah, we should put him in the simulator and kill him in the first scene. And, and, and Harv turned around and goes, that is genius! <laughs> and I said, are you talking to me? Um, 
because I, I was not, it was not planned, you know. It was like a mumbled coffee moment, as best as I can remember it. Um, so I, you just do the best you can, and uh, if that's for me, tell them I'll call back. <laughs> so, yes. You, it seems like, from the perspective of the audience and the consumer, you seem to be the type of filmmaker that's very hands-on with the mastering of the home video releases of your films. Like, you've been very present in those discs and in those releases. I was curious to find out how much of a hands-on approach a studio allows you with the mastering, the look, the content, everything like that, of, a, of these various releases that have come out over the years. Typically, the studio is not very interested. They allow much more leeway. When I did the day after, what they call the foreign theatrical cut, I got to put back stuff that wasn't going to make it into the American network version. Um, I had lost a couple of battles on con with the studio. I think they have to kind of pee on things to sort of mark their territory. <laughs> back to pee again. Here we go. Never ends. All roads lead. Anyway. Um, <laughs> They, they say, oh, we don't like this line or something. So I had to take out that, that, that uh, Scotty's nephew was midshipman uh, Preston. And I thought, you lose a valuable plot point mm -hmm. by this. You don't understand why Scotty is so devastated later. So I put it back. And they didn't care. <laughs> they didn't care. Because they had, like, had their say. You know, if there are 15 of them sitting in a room... And, and every one of them doesn't have an opinion, then why are they being paid? Right. So you've got to say something. Um, but typically, I don't think they're very interested mm -hmm. in the overseas and the foreign. When I made my changes on Khan, which were s so slight, I think they wanted to advertise it as the director's cut. And I said, no, 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 come on. I changed two little tiny things, and you think you're going to squeeze the turnip again? Enough. When it was announced in 1983 that Leonard Nimoy would be directing the next Star Trek movie, The Search for Spock, how did you feel about that? Having oh, it was get offered to me first. It was offered to me, and uh, I said, what is it about? And they explained it was about Spock comes back to life. And I had fought that rightly or wrongly, bitterly. I thought, when we, if you're going to, I thought a lot of people love this character and we're going to wrench him by the guts and at the end say, oh, just kidding? This was a dry hustle? I thought that was unforgivable. Maybe I was wrong about it. You know, I, I said, so it's about resurrection. I don't know how to do resurrection. So I'm going to pass on that. And Leonard was waiting in the wings. And he, he called me. And he said that Michael Eisner, who was running Paramount, was trying to talk him out of directing the movie and also being the star of the movie, and it's too much, and this and this and that, and what do you think? And I remembered saying, are you prepared to let this ship sail without you? And he said, oh, absolutely. I said, then sit tight. You're going to direct the movie. And that's how we wound up doing it. Thanks so much for, for coming, and I hope you...
As always, we're going to comment on one of the advertisements that's found in Starlog Magazine. This one is going to piggyback off of our discussion of toys and merchandise related to the Wrath of Khan. This time, it's the Star Trek II Wrath of Khan video game watch. It's a space-age watch. A six-function digital watch with quartz accuracy showing hour, minute, second, month, date, and a day of the week. A 12-hour format with a built-in illumination device for visibility in darkness or under low light. An hourly alarm, a 24-hour alarm, and a four-year auto calendar. One touch, plus or minus 30-second error correction. It's a space attacker video game. A built-in space attacker game, complete with space war sound effects. A two-game capability, game A and game B, offering two levels of skill. Plus, a special game hold feature that allows you to pause in the middle of the game and then resume playing at a later time. It's both, with a two-layer LCD display, one layer for watch and one for game. It's a remarkable dual-purpose space-age instrument at a remarkably low price. So it says only nineteen ninety-five plus postage. That's a great price for that, yeah. This is the era of digital watches. Everyone wanted a digital watch. Yeah, that would have been neat to have that. I mean, and they had the technology back then to make a digital watch and and a game, two games, all in one. Now, you have this watch, and you call this your convention watch. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you wear this at conventions? Well, it's to, to have it because we usually go to conventions in a different time zone, so that watch is set for a different time zone, and then that way I don't have to change... The time when I'm, when I'm back home, I only use it at cons. And I like having Star Trek memorabilia, so I mean, yeah, it's, it's just a great, uh, throwback type of watch to have. Yeah, and they still work. If you get an old one, replace the batteries in there, it has durability over 40 years now. Except the date only goes up to four years. That's right, the date <laughs> is wrong. <laughs> yeah, you're right. The, the video game that's included in it has nothing to do with Star Trek. It's pretty much like a Space Invaders or Missile Command type game. Just shoot a ship flying by. I left my Star Trek II Wrath of Khan watch. Thanks for listening to us. Don't forget to subscribe to our show and give us positive feedback on your podcast app. Your five-star reviews are always welcome. Live long and may the Force be with you. Nanu Nanu. All I have to do is push this little red button. All I need to do is blow up the whole world. All I need to do is build a new state device. Don't have to tell nobody but a little press would be nice. I love my Star Trek II Wrath of Khan watch. <laughs> I'm going to release all your ridiculousness in one episode. I was thinking about that. I have a blooper. We need a blooper episode. <laughs>